Welcome to episode 59 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today's episode is titled She is Called, which is also the name of an upcoming conference I'll tell you more about in a minute. Um, Today we'll talk a little bit about the idea of calling, about women in leadership in the church, and about why I believe facilitating networking for women is vital to shifting sexism in church leadership. Joining me today are Sarah Davis and Kimberly Feldman, both recent additions to the Christian Feminist Podcast team. Hello, Sarah and Kim. Hello. Welcome. Um, So we'll take a minute to introduce ourselves to you. You've probably um, heard from each of us before, but um, we'll take just a minute. So my name is Carla Ewart. I live in Minneapolis. Uh, I work for an organization called The Open Network um, that organizes progressive Christian congregations. And I I live here with my daughters. And yeah, so that's me. How about you, Sarah? I am a librarian in Waco, Texas, and I've been here for about three years or so. I live in Waco, but just to reiterate, I do not know Chip and Joanna Gaines, Mm -hmm. and I've never been on the show Fixer Upper, because that's what everyone asks when they find out that I live in Waco. (laughs) And Kim? I admit the question may have crossed my mind at some point, Sarah, but I didn't actually ask. Um... I am Kim Feldman, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I do ministry with my husband. I'm also a a full-time PhD student at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I teach a class there, and I work with pre-service teachers. And I am studying language literacy and culture, specifically focusing on how exemplary teachers negotiate literacy policy and practice, particularly when they don't dis particularly agree with the policy, and I am using feminist research methods in my dissertation. Awesome. That's very exciting. Very cool. Um, So today's topic is near and dear to me and is in part a shameless plug for a conference I'm planning through the organization I work for, which I just mentioned, uh, the Open Network. So um, the Open Network, like I said, is is a network of progressive congregations, particularly progressive evangelical churches, which is, I know, a bit of an oxymoron, but, um, or seems to be, but it's actually not. Um, So one of the things I've noticed in working with uh, progressive evangelical churches is that that these congregations are very on board with women in leadership as an idea and are doctrinally aligned with the idea, but that there are still very few women in leadership in those churches. Um, I've been particularly curious about that as a woman who grew up as an evangelical and who um, I feel like has sort of drifted, like I think I probably would have been in church leadership or pastorate had I grown up in a different context, had I grown up more mainline, that probably would have been the direction I would have gone and and have taken sort of a roundabout way to be back in faith work. Um, so I've been very curious about these, these churches that are led by people who grew up similarly to me and why there aren't more women in leadership in these churches and, and what is it that's sort of hindering those, those churches from having women in leadership when mainline churches are often 
I, like I work with a lot of mainline churches in the process of my work as well. And there are quite a few female clergy in those churches. And so I've been really curious about it. And the, the female clergy in the mainline churches have also been curious about sort of the, the evangelical component of this, like why women in leadership has been um, slower in coming in that contingent. So in order, so I've just been, I've been very curious about that sort of space. And I, I really believe that there are two trends or ideas of evangelical, of the evangelicalism of the eighties and nineties that have had a residual and lasting effect on women's leadership in, in that, um, denomination or non-denomination really. Um, I believe in order to change something, uh, like that, you have to identify it and name it. And so that's the space I'm sort of thinking about and working in is trying to name that gap, that thing that has happened in the evangelical church that has progressive ideals at this point, but is still lacking in female leadership. I want to name and understand what that is. Um, so she is called as a gathering, a non-conference a, a non conference, really, of women to discuss uh, the idea of calling and leadership. Um, it's an effort to name their experience of faith and womanhood. So um, it's happening in New York City, May 2nd through 4th of this year. So just in about a month, um, it's happening at West End Collegiate Church, who have graciously uh, offered to host for us. Jess Cast is a minister there, and she's my co-conspirator in this, helping to pull together things. Um, and the way that we've structured it is as um, a set of conversations. So instead of having a presenter impart her wisdom to you, you'll be invited to participate in conversations on six different topics and how they relate to your womanhood and your faith and your calling. Uh, these topics are history, art, logistics, conflict, knowing, activism, um, and each topic will be guided by a facilitator, but the content will be built collaboratively through conversation. Um, the reason that we're doing that is that I believe the more that we explore and understand our experiences, the more power we will have to make changes where changes need to be made. Um, I believe that women really are full of knowledge on all of these talk topics, and we can learn so much from each other. But we've sort of been conditioned not to toot our own, own, own horns or to consider ourselves experts. So she is called once to deliberately invite women to display their expertise and to work together and to network so that we can all be stronger. Um, so I would love to invite all of you. I've sort of been monologuing here, and we'll, we'll get to where we're talking a little more about, together about the idea of calling and what that means and why a conference like this could matter in the context of women in leadership in, in our current culture. Um, but I'd really like to invite all of our, our Christian Feminist Podcast listeners to be there. I would love to have you join us. Tickets are only 200 bucks, um, and listeners to this podcast can receive 20% off by using the promo code CFP when you register, capital CFP, and I'd love to have you there. So um, pulling everybody else into this conversation, on our knowing segment today, I'd like to discuss our own views and experiences of the word calling. Um, that word for me has been a little problematic. And so I'm, and using it for this conference was actually, I had to have a moment of like reconciliation with that word. So I want to understand from you, uh, Sarah and Kim, how you understand that word, like what your background taught you about it and how you experience it. Um, Sarah, will you kick us off talking a little bit about calling and how you understand that? Yes. So I at first and have primarily always understood the word calling to mean, and relate to ministry because that's as a child growing up in a conservative evangelical background, that's really the only way I had ever heard it used. As I got older, occasionally I might hear a friend or someone in college talk about, Oh, I felt a calling to this. I felt a calling to that, but they were always talking about something that was very, self-sacrificial. So I've never mm -hmm. heard of anyone having a calling to be a banker. Right. I've never heard anyone use the word, Oh, I have a calling to engineering. No. I mean, there are people who want to be engineers. They're 
great engineers or they want to be computer programmers. But I've never heard anyone use the word in any way that wasn't related to some sort of kind, some sort of profession that required an immense amount of emotional labor, either social work or teaching or nursing. I may have heard one or two people possibly say it about just being like a medical doctor. I've never heard anyone use the call, the phrase calling for any job that you could really make money at. If that makes any sense, right, there's yeah. always been, in my understanding, a very self-sacrificial element to when that word is used. Because I'm, I'm being called to this because it is not something that normal or, or everyday people are going to want to do and engage in right. in their everyday life. It is going to be difficult, and so therefore, I, I have to have that extra. I have to have that that extra call from God. He has to speak to me directly because why else would I be a social worker or a teacher in a low income school district right. or a nurse or a missionary or any of these things where we kind of hear this phrase used. It's always again in a very self-sacrificial way. Nobody that I've ever met has ever used the phrase. Well, I, God has really called me to be a banker. Mm-hmm. So how does that ring? And, to you? And, yeah. How does that ring to you now? Does that still feel um, does that to me, it's go ahead to me. It still really feels that I, I associate it with basically any form of self-sacrificial work or job. My father taught one class, uh, at Hardin Simmons, which is a Baptist university in Abilene mm-hmm. over business as a calling. And he had to kind of invent the class. And most of his students were all kind of, kind of confused in the whole process, not because of how he was teaching, but just nobody ever thinks about it that way. If you are called to do something, if you're called by God, it is clearly for working with the poor or serving him through ministry. It's rare that we think of God calling me to go out and just live my life and work in the secular world. Now I may want to be a banker or a computer programmer or a farmer or anything, but those are, it's rarely anything we, we say that we are called to do. And so for myself, I still highly associate it with, again, any form of self-sacrificial work or some, or something like that. Right. Right. Kim, how about you? Is that familiar to your experience of that word? Um, you know, I didn't even think about it until she brought it up, you know, that it is typically associated with more sacrificial work. And, you know, as for my experience, um, you know, I accepted Christ in college and I was part of a very vibrant campus ministry and everyone was going into ministry and going off to seminary and into missions. And, and they all felt called into this, uh, you know, they, they seemed to feel this call into these different fields. And I remember at the time, feeling like, well, if I'm passionate about Jesus, is this what I need to do? But distinctly feeling that I was called to teach. And so it was one of those sacrificial, you know, fields. Um, so it was still a calling, not into ministry, but into teaching. And that I felt that that's where God wanted to use me. But I, you know, I would like to think that even if you are going into, you know, acting or music or, um, banking or something, I would like to think that you could be called into those places as well by God, um, that those are places where he needs his people as well. But, um, but you're right that it's not typically used that way in our culture. Um, I was raised nominally Catholic. And so, um, I did associate, 
I, well, I did have a sense of calling both uh, to religious life for priests. Um, and so I did accept that calling for towards um, pastoral leadership, a male uh, dominated area. Um, and so that was kind of um, ingrained in me early on. And I de- never even questioned it until, um, even though I went, I accepted Christ through a Methodist ministry, I never questioned anything until my uh, own church currently started going through a process of drafting their constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that constitution as a Southern Baptist church involved um, kind of delineating female leadership and that, um, elders could only be men. Mm. And that's really where I had to struggle with it because as a partner in that church, we had to vote whether or not to affirm this constitution. And I had always kind of passively accepted that that was the norm for our church. Um, until I had to actively vote on the constitution. Mm -hmm. And so that led to many long nights and late night conversations with husband who happens to be the lead pastor at that church. Um, so that has been an interesting season for me over the past few years. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about, um, how I processed through that during the episode. Um, so, you know, I definitely feel, um, that I I have been called into specific ministries and places and, and vocations. Um, I know that women I know have been called, um, but that, that, issue of, um, female calling into church leadership, specifically into the pastoral role is something that, um, I've been talking and thinking a lot about lately. So I have many, many thoughts to share. Right. Oh, that's great. I'm excited. Um, feels like we're coming from sort of all different angles. Um, except like you said, Sarah, I, I always sort of thought of calling as a self-sacrificial thing that whenever that word was used, Um, So my dad is a pastor, and he has a very strong story of having been called to ministry. Um, And it was the thing of being in high school and feeling God calling him to ministry and him really struggling with that and not being sure that he wanted to or that he was able to. And it's sort of being like a wrestling with God for for the sake of this calling, whether or not he was going to to do that thing. Um, And so it was always sort of both self-sacrificial and both and a high honor sort of at the same time, if that makes any sense. And in my world, it was primarily um, framed for men, that men men experienced calling. Um, women could have things that they served in, but it was less often considered a calling, if that makes any sense. Um, so for me, and then I went, I went on to Bible college, and I remember being in, um, in a class that was like a, our, our sort of evangelism 101 or something like that, um, where we did our spiritual giftedness testing and I came out gifted as a pastor. And I remember our professor saying, if you're a woman and you tested as a pastor, don't despair. You know, you can, you can use that gift in other areas. You just can't lead a church. And I, and I remember feeling almost embarrassed that I had like identified with that calling for a minute that, Oh, that, that, that's true. That's true of me. That is a thing in me, a giftedness in me. Um, and then having to sort of realign that and realize that that calling didn't apply to me. Um, so I think the word call has been problematic for me in lots of ways. Um, and one of the things that I've tried to understand about it a little bit is that I, I think part of what the word call implies is that it's something outside of you calling you to do something outside yourself, you know, like moving you toward something that calls you like, 
Sarah was saying, to sacrifice or, or whatever, to do something outside. You're moving sort of away from yourself. And what I think I've sort of how I've reframed calling a little bit in my, in my mind and my understanding is that calling is actually an internal process, that it's actually from your deepest place of passion, the thing that you're, you're most um, drawn to and most gifted at is actually your calling. It's not a thing you're supposed to sacrifice for the sake of something else. If you're, if you're gifted and you're driven toward numbers and order, you probably are called to be an engineer. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is your calling. That is your deepest passion is to order things and to make it better for the rest of us in that way. And if you're, you know, if you are gifted as a pastor, I think that that is your calling, whether you're a woman or a man. Um, so, so those are things that, that I've wrestled with deeply as we've, as I've processed this. And, um, the, t- the, the title for this conference came out of my friend Jess did a session at a conference we organized last fall, um, through the open network and her, her, her session was, she is called. And, um, I talked with her a little bit about it, about her just talking with women about knowing their calling and how they know that thing. And I thought, Oh, that's so interesting to put the, she on there with it. She is called. And to just let that stand as a powerful thing that, that a, a female calling is as valid as any, um, instead of it being sort of a separate thing. So it was incredibly powerful. So then when we, when we started working on this conference, I thought that's what I want to call it. Like I just, I have to have that word and sort of (laughs) reorient that word, reclaim that word as something that women experience as well in whatever way they experience it, whether that's to ministry or to engineering or to teaching or whatever that is for women to get to a point where they are in close contact with their deepest internal passions, because I think we as women get pulled away from that more often than men do for the sake of service to other things, whether it's our family or um, other things that we we think we should prioritize over our sort of deepest internal spaces. Um, and, and so anyway, that's why it, where calling has sort of come to land for me right now, and I'm sure that will continue to develop. But... Um, but as we as we kind of think through this, the first um, we read a couple of things to to prep for this podcast, and and the f- the first one was a report on women in church leadership from Pew from Pulpit and Pew, which is an organization that does research on pastoral leadership in the U.S. And um, Sarah, can you give us a quick summary of that research? And um, as we go through it, it's the the word called was actually used a lot in it, so I was surprised by that. But anyway, go ahead, Sarah. Of course. So this study, which was done in 2010, uh, focuses on several aspects of women in ministry. The three that we focused on for our reading was uh, paths into ministry, how women become ministers and what their experience is like, how they get along on the job, and then the impact that uh, female clergy have on their congregants and parishioners. So the first chapter that we talked about, uh, it provided a lot of historical context for the growth and development of women in ministry beginning in the 1970s and the rise of feminism. For the first time, you have women attending seminary in larger numbers, and different denominations then are really split on their acceptance of women in the ministry. These splits tend to fall along sacramentalist and biblical inerrancy lines. So if we're talking about sacramentalists, that would be tended, that would be, say, Catholic, something like that. And then biblical inerrancy would be what we would uh, think of as a more conservative evangelical uh, Southern Baptist, that kind of thing. They tend to have more of an issue with females in ministry, or at least 
as we might say now, females in a prestigious uh, spot in the church. It's it's all well and good for a woman to be a, a children's minister. Where you know we tend to be fine with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that most of these denominations seem to be reacting against the rise of kind of a secular humanism, according to the article, which focuses more on the rights and needs of the individual than on traditional experience. Mm-hmm. We The next chapter uh, focuses on how women really get along with their congregants and parishioners. Uh, the majority of any clergy's male or female interactions is going to be with belay because most of us are not ordained ministers. And so acceptance varies for most churches, on how actively involved that individual is with the local church. I thought that was really interesting. So for people who are not really actively involved with that church, or maybe that they are, they just kind of work in the denomination, or they're at a different church, or they're just, they don't come all that regularly, most of them actually, apparently, according to this, are fine with female ministers. It's only as somebody gets more and more involved with the congregation and more and has more and more invested that they start to tend to have an issue. And so I thought this was very interesting. It kind of showed this sense of like, oh, well, if something is okay for them, it may not be okay for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the other church, it's cool. It's great if y'all right. want to do that. But, you know, the second that it kind of comes home to roost for someone's own church, then people tend to have much more of a of an issue with it. It's, it's fine. And in the abstract, but when I actually have to inter- interact with a female preacher, well, then it becomes becomes yeah. a much bigger deal. So I was really curious about that. that there was sort of a, um, while we're talking, we can, yeah, but there was sort of an upside down, or a, there was a triangle saying that, you know, like, like you said, it's sort of an accepted thing until you get to the point of congregants who are deeply in, um, invested financially and deeply invested in their time in the church, and then they start to feel like there's a problem with female leadership. And I was super curious about that and wondering about, is that financial support um, primarily male then? And there's a, there feels like then there's an incongruency in terms of their understanding of what they're supporting in leadership, that they don't want to have a, a woman who is sort of in some way uh, an authority over that. Like, I, I was just so curious about that, that, that. Um, or whether it's just that people who are that invested in the church are, do tend to be a little more traditional in their views. And that, that is why they are that invested financially and otherwise. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I, I agree. One of the things when I was reading it, I, my thought process was that you just, that you have a higher standard when it comes to yourself. Mm -hmm. Just like people would say like, well, it's fine for someone to date this person, but you know, I wouldn't want my friend or daughter or somebody dating somebody like that. Like you just have a much higher standard about things. Mm -hmm. And so that I, it probably does, uh, belie a, um, an inerrant sexism that, you know, it's just, well, it's not quite as good as having a male minister, you know, it's like second place is kind of how I interpreted that. But again, that's just my interpretation and we can get it more to that for a little later. Right. Uh, one of the things that they also talked about in this section was they talked about the issue of role strain that women tend to have a slightly uh, higher issue of role strain as a clergy. And so role strain is when 
that a person has to be multiple things at any time. So the issue that they, or the example they provide is you are a minister and you are sitting down to have a Friday night evening dinner with your spouse and talk with your children about the day. And, Oh, you get a call that a member of the congregation has been rushed to the hospital. You need to be there. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and so you immediately have to, and so you have to juggle these multiple roles and that for female clergy, not only are they struggling, they may have to have the role of clergy or preacher or pastor or priest or whatever P word that we're going to use. <laughs> they also have the extra weight of being a wife and being a parent and being a sibling and being a citizen. And that those things can really weigh. And that the emotional labor that carrying all of those requires can be very, very difficult. Uh, it can be even worse, though, they talked about for single clergy, because single female clergy can, one, face an incredibly difficult time with dating, and that it's very difficult for them to establish appropriate boundaries. I have a good friend who just moved with her husband, and he took up a, a job as a head preacher in Virginia, and she was telling me that you know, there is this assumption that, you know, now that she went from being a minister's wife to being a preacher's wife, that there is a different set of boundaries that your congregants tend to think that they have with you, that you are just more, you should always be available and you should always be welcome and that you always need to be available to them and be serving them. And so that made me really think of if you are a single clergy and you do not have the, you do not have the excuse of a husband or a child or any of those things that normal, that married couples can say, Oh, well, I have to check with my significant other. Let me get back to you on that. Like you are presumed you will always be available because you don't have any of those other things that give your life meaning like a husband and a child. And so that you should just constantly be available to supply emotional labor for the church. And so they talked about how that that is just a huge drain on the female clergy. And for single male preachers that I've known, you know, they are constantly invited over by the little old ladies who will give them casseroles and all this kind of stuff. But you just get less of that as a female, uh, as a single female, uh, clergy really kind of according to this article. Um, and then the final section that we read, uh, looks at a lot of the different possible outcomes of increased uh, female presence in the ministry. So there were a couple of different options. Some uh, were concerned that some of the uh, best positions are being saved for uh, male ministers, while females uh, are kind of relegated to mid-level positions. And so they can do maybe youth ministry or they can do children's ministry, but putting them in kind of what kind of the head role of the main pastor or associate pastor, something like that, that those roles are still typically reserved for men. There are also concerns of people will say, oh, they went over a lot of different things that people kind of say why you shouldn't have female ministers and the sense that, well, men will stop coming to church. And I'll go ahead and say that I go to a church with a male pastor and I've always got attended a church with a, a male head pastor. And 
there are a lot of men who don't come to church with a male pastor. So I'm not super, I personally am not super concerned that we're going to lose a lot of men because they're already gone for the most part, if they don't have a significant other who's making them attend. And so most of my thoughts while I was reading all of this was that it sounded, I read the whole thing and with the exception of kind of who is the most offended for, for female leadership, my whole thought process was, yeah, that seems about right. And not that it seemed right and that it seemed like good, moral, or correct. Not that, oh, this is how it should be, but it sounded, yeah, that sounds about right. Of Most of the information didn't really surprise me. That there wasn't anything where I was like, oh, I never would have thought that. I Most of it was like, yep, I could have figured a pretty good amount of this out from being a member of a evangelical, a Southern evangelical uh, church tradition my whole life. Right. So none of it was anything that was super shocking. I was like, huh. And I don't know what that necessarily says about me or my church tradition. And I was like, yep, that, mm-hmm. I, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. So uh, what about you ladies? What was it that uh, from this particular article that you found either compelling or surprising? Right. So I, like you, wasn't terribly surprised by anything. I think it, it, it just reiterated things to me that seemed uh, obvious that I feel like we kind of, we do it at certain points get to, we start, we sort of start to think we're done with this, like that sexism isn't actually a real thing. Um, and that we're, we're sort of past it. And so seeing things in statistics, like this percentage of women had their first call at a declining rural church (laughs) versus this number of men, percentage of men had their, you know, those kinds of things where women were literally set up to fail often or given positions that were, were, far less desirable than what their male colleagues were given. And, and that that somehow then ends up um, contributing to the way we view female leaders is that, that women are, are contributing to church decline or that women are women in leadership are, are contributing to church decline or that they are um, sort of less competent than men when it's actually from the beginning, from their placement that they are put in those positions. And, um, those kinds of things were just sort of distressing to me to think we're not starting from the same starting block. You know, we're starting from so far back and having to catch up and then do the same kind of work that, that male clergy are having to do. Um, so those kinds of things were, were not surprising to me, but to see them in stark numbers were, were fascinating to me. Uh, was fascinating to me. There was one spot um, where they were talking about sort of how people tend to view women in in, in church leadership. And there was sort of this, um, it almost reiterated the sort of virgin and whore uh, mentality, that sort of dichotomy, which is that either women will come in and purge the church of sexism and inequality, and they will sort of be the savior of the church, or women will come in and destroy, do the final sort of nail in the coffin and destroy it. Uh, and um, I thought, man, I, I'm so curious about finding a third way between those things. Like, what does it look like for, for men and women to lead in, in uh, as a team rather than one replacing the other or or any of that, um, that could give us a, an actual, like, generative way forward that isn't uh, combative and isn't um, um, resigned, but it is actually a generative way forward for people who are trying to make this this work. Um, Kim, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the part that I um, really keyed in on was actually something that I felt was absent from the other text that we're going to talk about, and that was the issue of role strain. Um, 
because that's something that we've identified as a major issue at our own church. Um, because part of what, what came out of that conversation around um, just a lot of us really struggling with that stance of no women in pastoral leadership in our church. Um, in that conversation, one of the things that we kind of talked a lot about was that, you know, we are different by design, that God created us male and female, and that he has uniquely gifted all, both men and women um, for the work that he has created for them to do. And, um, and so they really have emphasized in our church that um, men and women are different, but that they are e- equal and they're equal in value and they're equal in capacity and they're, um, equally needed in the church, including in leadership and, um, a series of events in our church where some women were really struggling made us realize that we, that our lack of women in leadership in our church was doing a disservice to the women in our church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there you know, we, we used to have some um, women deacons in our church, but a lot of them stepped down because of this thing of role strain. Um, they just, and, some, and it wasn't often expectations that were being placed on them by their husbands um, or by people in the church. It was expectations they were placing on themselves, you know, that and, and that society in general was placing on them, that they felt that they needed to slow down and to spend more time with their families. And they, you know, we've all experienced this as women where we never feel like we have enough, that we're always letting somebody down and they just couldn't let that be their kids. And so they often would step out of leadership. And so, um, we had kind of this, uh, female leadership vacuum at our church. Women were often small group leaders. Like we have, a, I mean, almost all of our small group leaders in our church, even for, uh, and we, we don't have gender specific groups. So it's for co-ed groups are women. Um, but having them and it's important to me that they are in our, um, deacons and others. Um, and we have them in some other smaller roles, but I really want them in that deacon role because I think it's important for women when they are struggling to see somebody in leadership that they can go to, Mm -hmm. um, other than the pastor. Um, and so this is something that's been on the heart of our male leaders and they've asked women over and over again and they're just not willing. And so this issue of, um, she is called, I think is really important because we've really been working on it from a perspective of, I don't want to say duty, but like, we really need this. Who's willing to step up right. and, you know, maybe we need to reframe it and say, and really talk about how we are all called to to something, you know, in the church, we all have a different function. And, you know, if, if the eye says it's not, no longer going to be an eye, then we're going to have a problem. Right. And so really helping women to discern their calling and to step out in faith, to, to, um, accept that calling and to, to allow them to find ways to use their passions in church. Um, that's supportive of the fact that they also have this role strain going on. Um, so I was really glad that they brought that up because I really think that the role strain issue is the biggest one that the women in our church are struggling with. Do you think that that, um, role strain is a thing that, that, um, women deal with primarily, or do you think that that is a, that, I mean, that to me also feels a little bit like an inequality, right? And that 
parents are parents, whether they're the mother or the father. And so, um, the extra or the added weight on, and definitely, uh, I, I, obviously there are times when biologically the mother is required and the father can't be right. But I think that, um, I'm, I'm just curious that that becomes a primarily female experience, that role strain. Like when did parenting become a primarily female experience? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I think, I think that it's absolutely an issue. Um, it's, I think it's a structural issue that, you know, I, I think we need to ask the reverse question of, um, you know, how can we move it away from being, because I feel right. like it's always been primarily right. a female thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that is the way it should be, it is the way it has been. Right. Um, and so I don't think we've broken free from that. Um, and even though I feel that the men in our church are very hands-on, I still feel that the women feel that burden more, right. um, that, that that's what they should be primarily focused on. And I think it's a unique issue for our church, too, because I don't want to make an example of one, um, that we're a very young church with a lot of young families. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the women are still nursing or still, you know, right. so, but I do think that structurally the way churches are set up and the way leadership is set up and the way businesses are set mm-hmm. up, I mean, it's all still based on patriarchy, you know, even if we have a progressive mindset and we are no longer trying to operate in that way, those structures are still in place. And so simple things like the, the leaders often, um, the times that they meet don't work out for the women, the women who work, they can't meet in the evenings because they want to be with their kids. They've been working all day. Um, and the, the, when they meet during the day, you know, like the way that I was able to take on um, kind of a leadership role last week in our church um, was that one of the pastors happens to be a part-time stay-at-home dad, and so both of us picked up our kids from school early one day and had a play date at my house, and that's how we were able to work on a project for the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's like we need to find those ways to accommodate the unique schedules. Um, you know, I think it might have to look different. Um mm-hmm to accommodate what the women feel is their burden for their kids and their family in this unique season of their life. Um, but I do think that it's a, it's a holdover of those structures that, um, make it sometimes easier for men to take on those leadership roles than women. Right. And we're sort of, um, we're sort of accustomed to logistically accommodating men's, um, men's work because it's a thing that we have typically assigned more value to. So if that, and, and rightfully so in certain cases where there's a a breadwinner, right, you have to, you have to make the money, you know, whoever's doing that, you have to make room for that to happen. So we're used to sort of validating a a man's schedule in a way that maybe sometimes we aren't validating for a woman's schedule um, because it isn't necessarily valued as highly. So I, I find that interesting in the way that we frame this stuff. Like how, how could we reframe that conversation so that, um, so that women, and I'm curious in a complementarian church where, um, women are, are needed to be in these positions of leadership, but they aren't, they aren't going to be honored in the same way as like the elders or the pastor would be. Um, and not that people do things only for honor, right? They, they often do it for the sake of, of service or whatever. Um, but how, how exactly are we going to validate that act in such a way that, that it's made room for in the same way that you would make room for an elder or a pastor? Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense at all? 
No, I, I think this is a big issue that I've talked a lot about is the devaluing of women's work. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that my husband and I have been working on a lot because he, he it, for him, he's really trying to move away from the idea that the elders role is somehow more prestigious or more important than the children's ministry or the women's ministry or, um, you know, any other given role in the church. He was like, we can't function as a church with just elders. You know, we have different roles, but they are equal. We need all of them. And and I think that that's an interesting way to look at things. And it's, and it's not true right now. You know, we do see, you know, children's ministry as less than, and should we? And, you know, that's one thing that I've, that I think a lot of the women in our church who are stay at home moms are really struggling with, not from a Christian perspective, but from a societal perspective that, that staying home with your kids is somehow less than Mm -hmm. going to work. And, um, you know, it's something that we've, I've talked about on here before that there is sacrifice and blessing in either choice that you make. Um, and so, you know, I think that we need to value all of the positions in the church more and stop, you know, change right. the way that the hierarchical um, view of how things operate in the church. Right. I think, yeah. And I, I think it's really difficult to do that when one set of positions are sort of so like a, a man could technically serve in any position, right, in the church where there's that one, those, those couple of sets of things that are restricted to just men. So women are, women are held out of a thing that men are. Do you know what I'm saying? So I yeah, I think that's really that's definitely one of the struggles. Yeah, I mean, I grew I grew up in a church that was that way as well. That and I remember, you know, it always being call the men forward, the deacons for particular things, and it it just doesn't matter how often you try to reframe that. If there's a position that is exclusively held by men, it it just becomes it becomes exclusive. That's what it becomes, and then it becomes a thing that is. Um, valued in a different way. Um, so I, I, I just, anyway, well, I think we will talk more about it as we get on to our second, our second piece, because she, she was actually really, um, articulate about trying to understand this struggle. Um, but before we move on though, from this last piece, was there anything like that you all wanted to say, uh, sort of to wrap up on this the research piece that, that you thought was interesting? Uh, I'm good. Amazing. Sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the main thing for me is that I would just want to kind of affirm what Kim said, that I think too many times what we do as women is that we, we look to what men do and we say that, is, and we, that is what we need to be doing mm-hmm. instead of saying like, and instead of saying, uh, what women do in children's ministry or, um, in organizing the entire social events of every and all of, and the welcoming committee and all these things that are traditionally considered more female um, oriented tasks, we we give these a lesser quality, and we really shouldn't. They are just as important, and just because they are not what the men do, do or what men naturally tend to, does not mean they are not equally valued and I and for me I would just love if we could get to a place where each one that each task is viewed as equal in standing uh and that and that we're not just saying well because men do this we need to get there as women well that's that's really great but we don't need to be 
denigrating and saying, well, we, uh, the things that women traditionally serve in as well. Right. Right. So, um, I'm curious how it strikes you if we, if we like think a little bit, one of the things that this article was talking about too, is that the, the alignment with humanism and that, and humanism's, uh, focus on the individual over sort of a category or over a tradition is actually part of, of, where the line is falling for churches that affirm female leadership or churches that don't like those who have sort of followed secular humanism in, um, in prioritizing the individual are, are those who have said women can be in leadership because what's that do what that's doing is saying that, that the role is not based on gender. It's based on an individual's calling an individual sense of, of passion and vocation and those types of things. And that that actually is more aligned with, with, um, with what calling is than, than just a gender. So as we're talking about things, these things, we're getting really, we're getting really into like what's a man thing to do or what's a woman thing to do. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we've got, what about the individual? Like, what if you are a woman who, who does feel a particular call to pastor it and you're in a church where that's not an option for you? Um, it's really hard not to then say, okay, I'm, now I'm actually not aligning with my internal passion because I'm not allowed to. So what do you all feel in terms of that move toward the humanism, humanism's um, valuing of the individual in, in regards to this? I think that for myself, I see that it's, it's, I have to be honest, it's still something that I myself struggle with a little bit. Um, yes, I'm on the Christian feminist podcast, but that's still something that just like my background sometimes like, Oh, what, what do we think? And I, I really kind of have to struggle with it a little bit myself is mm-hmm. just like, is this really okay? Is this, um, and I, I go to a church where women have uh, preached from the pulpit and that we have female deacons and all this and that women have preached on Sunday mornings and you know, all that kind of thing. But it's still, still, I've never been at a church where we, you know, the head minister has been female. And I, I distinctly remember, my very first time going to a uh, Methodist church with a friend and seeing a female and just, it blew my mind because it just was like, I didn't even know that that was, that could be a thing. And so because of my background, it's still something that I occasionally have to be like, yes, yes, this is okay. Mm -hmm. This is all right. And I like, I sometimes have to like prep myself because like my natural inclination is like, Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. So I'm just saying that to be like completely honest with y'all and my, and our listeners that it's that even you can even be on a Christian feminist podcast and still sometimes have like issues, like accepting like the full equality that is offered. For me, you know, I did highlight that section um, because I, I do feel like that our church is at a place where, um, in a lot of ways, we have a lot of very socially progressive individuals in our church um, that um, are actively working towards um, greater equality and whether it's greater racial equality or gender equality in society. Um, And so there's not this sharp distinction between, um, you know, those who elevate tradition over the individual, um, there's, it's, it's just not there. You know, there's definitely, there's a lot of very thoughtful conversations going on, um, a lot of space for nuance and a lot of space for, um, the both and, and I, 
I think the biggest thing is that, you know, our church does fall in that category of biblical inerrancy that, you know, we are trying as best and as faithfully as we can to look at culture through the lens of scripture rather than scripture through the lens of culture. And, um, and so it's not something that we have, we claim to have all the answers on. Um, we have, uh, determine how we're going to operate as a church, um, based on our best understanding of scripture, um, but that we're still trying to figure out what that really looks like in our effort to work towards uh, equality in all of its different facets. Yeah, absolutely. I I thought it was interesting at the end of the article, it talked about um, about the sort of Judeo-Christian ethics of... um, of other centered love, equality, justice, freedom, and how in the United States or, and how in the church that sometimes it seems like, or how it seems like secular institutions are doing a better job of applying these core Judeo-Christian values than churches, um, in some ways. And I thought that was an interesting point to make that, um, that it sometimes seems to come down to a, a, a set of doctrines versus a set of values. And that's, that's an interesting contradiction that I think is happening in churches a lot of times right now, Kim, like you were saying, where you sort of have one set of values that, that holds equality and freedom and those kinds of things to be deeply important. And then a a set of doctrines that have been handed down and, and that have been developed that, that seem to contradict that and trying to sort that out is a really tricky space for a lot of churches right now, I think, um, so, yeah, so let's, let's move on to the second piece that, that we read. We read a few chapters of Dare Mighty Things, Mapping the, Christian, the Challenges of Christian Leadership for Women. And uh, Kim, would you give us a quick summary of, of that book? Sure. Um, so I was really excited about this piece. Um, Haley Lee Scott uh, is a scholar. Um, she, this piece definitely grew out of her research, And um, I'm excited about it because it's definitely more qualitative than the previous article that we read. And and I love qualitative research because it kind of brings the stories that can kind of uh, tell the stories behind the numbers of quantitative research that we looked at previously. And in this particular piece, it grew out of her discussion with her colleagues where they realized that part of the struggle that Christian women have in pursuing leadership is that they don't have enough mentors and role models to kind of show the way that um, because Christian um, leadership roles are predominantly male, there aren't very many women to kind of invest in the women that are coming back up behind them. And so she decided to use research as a means of finding answers to her questions about Christian leadership for women. And um, I, I, so I was kind of excited about that more qualitative approach to, to things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I loved about her first chapter, because, you know, it, coming onto this podcast, um, it was a concern for me, like where, where are we coming from complementarian or egalitarian? And one of the things I love about the Christian feminist podcast is that we have complementarians and egalitarians, um, on the podcast and that we have found a way to be in dialogue together. And I love the episodes that we did on egalitarian and complementarianism. And one of the things that came out of that is that they figured out that those who are truly living out complementarianism, like not those who just say they are, but then are actually very, um, 
much a part of the patriarchy. But those who are truly living out egalitarianism um, in a biblically uh, founded way, they look a lot alike from the outside, um, whether in their marriages and in their churches. Um, And so in this particular book, she, I love how she talks about it. She does a really good job of kind of laying out the central tenets um, in a very simple uh, way. And she also lays out the potential consequences and problems that can come out of each perspective. Um, but one of the things she says is that both sides of the argument have well-developed reasoning and sound positions for their views. Both are committed to the authority of scripture. Both sides are equally committed to the evangelical tradition. Both sides draw, draw compelling arguments from the biblical texts. Um, and then she later says both sides have been injured by the arguments of the other because the arguments take place in a larger context that includes the abusive male chauvinism that has dominated most cultures and also the radical feminism that denied the authority of scripture and sought to redefine and reinterpret the scriptures in light of a new agenda. Um, so and then she goes on to say that there's room in evangelicism to maintain both the particular views regarding female leaders and the commonality to which we are called, just as there is both unity and diversity in the Holy Trinity. Theological debate gobbles up so much of the conservatism of the conversation about women that it is difficult to move forward to talk about something else, such as how to support and encourage female leaders. Please do not misunderstand me. The theological conversation about female leaders is an important conversation, but it's not the only conversation we should be having. The failure to move forward in our conversation about female leaders to discuss how we can support them, encourage and equip them hurts the church because half the church is woefully unprepared for the ministry to which they are called by the nature of their individual giftedness. Um, I just thought that like that to me was very freeing um, because you know, this has been something that my husband and I have been working on for, I feel like it might be a year or two. Um, and I, just the idea of, you know, moving past, like the thing that we can agree on is that we need women leaders in this church. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we're not sure how, where we stand on the issue of pastoral leadership, we know we need female leaders. And so this, book kind of got at that issue of like, how do we support these women? And some of the chapters that we read talked about, um, I read a chapter eight, which was about women's ministry and really focused on women's ministry as ministry by women rather than ministry to women and kind of getting away from, we need to have relaxing and, um, social events to, we need to be rolling up our sleeves and getting to work together for a hurting society. And, um, I just thought that was a neat way to frame that. She talked about the barriers to leadership for women in church and society. Um, and I loved her discussion of metaphors instead of thinking about the glass ceiling, she said, or a brick wall facing women. Let's talk about, um, this labyrinth of closed door and locked doors and detours that we need to help women navigate this labyrinth that they face in, um, working towards leadership. Um, and she also talked about the importance of not seeing, uh, barriers as personal failures. So when we hit one of those walls, not to see it as a failure on our part, um, that's internal, but seeing it as something external that needs to be dealt with. Um, and that we really need to focus on our spiritual obligation to use our giftedness. You know, we have been, it's very clear in scripture that when we have these certain gifts, we are to be using them for the work that God has prepared for us. So if we feel called into something, we need to 
to pursue that. Um, I love that she emphasized the importance of academia, that that's not, that that is a completely legitimate way for us to use our giftedness, um, because that's one way that we can, um, kind of chip away at culture and, um, the way the structures in society that can hold women back. Um, she talked about recognizing the need um, in our communities for looking for, at, for the small ways that we can impact our community every day, as well as our, our need for resiliency when we face these barriers. Chapter 10 had a really great discussion of the issue of sex and how um, men's, that, that, that need for being above reproach, how that can be a barrier to women in ministry. Um, and she did a nice job of talking about cross-gendered relationships and how to handle that appropriately in the church for leadership. Um, and in chapter 11, she talked about courage as a means of dealing with fear and bitterness and burnout, which is something that um, women struggle with. And that's where she got the closest to talking about the the role strain. Um, but she talked about it in the sense of burnout and she, I love the talk discussion of margin that, um, when we look at our power, our capacity as far as time and knowledge and skill set, and we subtract our load, which is all of the things that we have to do and all of the demands on us. If our load is greater than our power, then we have negative margin and that can lead to burnout. And I was like, oh, that's a really intriguing way to think about that. Um, and then chapter 12 talked about um, the importance of Christian virtues and leadership. And so things like faith, hope, love, courage, um, and the importance of spiritual disciplines in order to develop um, those uh, virtues that are needed for leadership. Um, but she had a lot of great tips and a lot of great, um, great ideas that I'm excited. My husband will be reading this book and we will be talking about how to implement some of these ideas in our church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a good book in a lot of ways. I, I struggled a little bit and this is a thing I think will be really interesting for the three of us to talk about. Cause I think we are coming at it from, from slightly different angles. Um, but she talked a lot about like, instead of focusing on what you can't do as a woman, focus on what you can do. So she had a lot of sort of, um, what felt to me a li- to be a little bit, uh, blithe, like a little bit too avoiding the problem and saying there are always ways to lead, whether or not you are in the pastorate or whether you're an elder or whatever, there are always ways to lead. And that can be leading the children's ministry or leading the whatever. And, and so she talked about a little bit about reframing the idea of leadership, which we talked about some before about just talking about leadership differently. But I felt a little bit like it was, it was too quick to dismiss the complicated nature of this for women that, that, because she is talking a little bit in the book about leaning toward the strenuous life, like pushing yourself toward your deepest passion and, um, and how oftentimes the church has shamed women into a corner. She actually said at one point where they aren't exercising their gifts because they've been so shamed or they've been so told of what they're not capable of doing. Right. So, so she put a lot of impetus on the women to say, well, it doesn't matter what you've been told, what you can or can't do, find a way to use your gifts you know, that isn't that thing that they told you you can't do. But I feel like it's, it's, 
it's insufficient to me, quite honestly. Like that feels insufficient to me. Not because I don't think it's valuable. And I think for for women, anytime you can take the positive view of a thing, for any of us, anytime you can take the positive view of a thing, go for it. But also if a thing is is genuinely damaging to people, push against it also and say, hey, wait, are we are we sure we're thinking about this in this way? Um, so for me to be like fully honest right now, we talked you talked a little bit, Kim, about your church uh, valuing biblical inerrancy and and interpreting scripture or interpreting culture through scripture rather than scripture through culture. And I I would just push back on that a little bit and say I don't think it's possible to interpret scripture outside of culture. Like I think when it was written, it was written in a particular culture, and 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 as we interpret it, we are always coming from our own cultural biases and seeing it from that angle. And so I think assuming that the one we're reading it with right now is actually the accurate one, um, I think is a, is a, is a, is a limited, it limits us to a particular set of standards that may or may not have been intended in the original text, but have been layered on by our, our forebearers until we have this particular set of doctrines that we've imposed upon the text, um, that may or may not reflect what's actually there in any way. So, so I feel a sense of, um, I think that, of course, find ways you can exercise your passions and your leaderships, your leadership skills. But if you've taken uh, alignment with real passion and any ambition out of that equation, you have limited women. You have made the strenuous life that she talks about, the life that is sort of fraught with potential for both success and failure and all of these things. You have diminished that because you can't feel that kind of passion toward a strenuous life unless you are living in your deepest passion. So you are actually robbing women from of a thing that they that they could be. And I and I I know that there are lots of I I you know moved out of faith work into academia because I felt like it was my next best place to do to do work like this that wasn't limited by my gender um, but now I find myself back in faith work and I'm realizing how many women have been set aside and how much the church has suffered from that and and how how much we need one another in this moving forward into the next phase of our leadership um, men and women to be together in leadership um, so anyway that that's kind of a uh, another monologue on, on what I felt about this book, but that was my biggest frustration with the book was that um, it both challenged women to live a strenuous life. And it also says, said, but also always see the, half, the glass half full. Don't push against the thing that you see. Just, just do the thing that you can do. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, I definitely, I, I highlighted that quote as well when she kind of was like, it may feel like, you know, I thought she was rather dismissive there. Um, and you know, I go back to what you were talking about. You said something about a third way earlier, and that's kind of where I felt like this is how we kind of chip away at that patriarchy in the church, um, that lingering patriarchy, because I, I feel like, you know, even the men in our church are trying to move away from that. Um, but it is finding those places, and we and, it, and there, there's this issue of supporting women because um, – everybody in my church wants women to be in leadership. The women want it, the men want it. And yet we're still having this vacuum. And I think Mm -hmm. that we've got to figure out how to um, support women so that they don't perceive these barriers and aren't hitting these barriers. Um, And that as we have women in those leadership roles and as they mentor younger women in those leadership roles, that we can kind of move the needle some. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
as much as I would like to just knock the walls down. Um, and I, I appreciated her, like I said, the use of metaphors, like let's get away from the wall metaphor because it's really, um, I don't yeah. know, defeating feeling, right. <laughs> um, the labyrinth metaphor might be better. Um, but we, we do need to figure out how to navigate and we do need people to go ahead of us and we need to lead the women behind us in order to navigate that labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say so we, it's yeah. not easy. <laughs> I would say we need men as well. Like this was another thing I've thought. Agreed. I've thought a lot about like um, one of the ways when you think about um, sort of how how can men be allies to women in moving them into leadership. And and sometimes I think men do that by creating a vacuum, saying I'm going to step out of the way so that you can come in as a woman and create what you would see women's leadership to be. And I, and I think that's an approach that works. I, I would be more curious about uh, an approach that says, I, let's, let's work together to understand what it would look like for you to know sort of the, the you know, old boys club rules. I'm going to tell you the tricks. I'm going to go ahead and inform you of the tricks so that you have the lingo of the trade and you can come in and sound like you know what you're talking about. I'm going to tell you all those secrets because you might not have them because you've been left out of the golf games and the lunches and all of that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So I'm going to tell you that stuff and I'm going to help you sound as competent as you are because most any field has a particular lingo and a particular set of right like language rules that are part of it or or any of that that you just have to be part of the the um part of the field to know about right and this is no different so for men to be able to step to say to women here here are the things you need to know now let's shape this together in a way that makes sense for both of us like it doesn't have to be just this set of rules and set of things i'm going to teach i'm going to teach you or or whatever but it can also be the thing you shape it to be but i i so yeah. i think I think that that sort of working together part is, is really interesting to me. Uh, you know? Yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely needed. I mean, we need both and the, the learning the discourses and practices of that male community, part of me kind of balks at that because I'm like, we need to shift that yeah, I agree. piece itself. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we can't let that, that discourse be dominated by men, but, um, but I also think that the only way that you can shift the discourse is to become to a part of that discourse yes. community. Um, and so, uh, so I think that makes a lot of sense to me from a language perspective and a right. community of practice perspective. Um, so I, I love that idea of male allies. And um, that's one of the things that we've been talking about as well, because my husband does like elder train candidate training. Like he does um, like theological study with men who want to become elders and we're going to expand that to include women so that they they have adequate training as well to Mm -hmm. be teachers of the word in our church. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's gotta be, that's, that's what we're starting to realize is that, um, like it can't just be the women in our church reading these books about female leadership. Like he needs to read these books and his other elders need to read these books. Um, and that's, I think that that's, gives me hope as well. Right. I love that idea of both of, of the framing coming from both sides, that it's not just, um, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, and super helpful. 
Um, you talked a little bit about like, no matter how hard you try to pull women into leadership in your church, there's a bit of a vacuum there. And I thought she addressed that a little bit too. And it's a thing I've, I've pondered in certain talks I've given, like, what is that gap? What is that vacuum in the church? And, um, she actually identified it very much like I have from my own experience and and church work, which is complementarianism that sort of teaches this, that there should be a vacuum. And, and, and then also sort of sets, uh, a, fem- a mindset for women that says I'm I'm not capable or I am less than I, whether it means to or not right because I do believe that right. complementarianism in its purest form says we're equal but just by separating out like I said um, women men can do all the roles women can do these ones that d- that is a, a a diminishing of of, of possibility a little bit. So we'll just, we'll just call it that. So I think a, a, a woman who grew up with that understanding and constantly seeing men in the important roles has a particular way of seeing herself because it's been ingrained. And then also the other one is purity culture. And she talked, like you said, on chapter 10, she talked a lot about purity culture and um, sexual threat and sexual, like hypersexuality as a way that we struggle to work with each other in the church. Um, and we did a whole episode on this, uh, gosh, probably a year and a half ago on cross-gendered relationships and how they're impacting Leader, women in leadership in the church, um, but I thought her take on it was was really great um, in that it is a thing that we are sort of hypersexualized, especially in purity culture where we've been so taught to view everything as a sexual threat um, that that we are actually more uh, intense in certain ways in our fear and our sexual fear than than maybe people who hadn't been brought up in that way. Um, so I think that that concern about working together men and women is, is actually a real thing that keeps men and women in these churches from being willing to be in roles together, if that makes sense. Um, and that's the thing I think we have to direct, we have to address really directly because we can overcome that. That's not a thing that has to hold us back, but it is a thing we've been trained to do to avoid one another. So I think that's interesting in terms of thinking about why there's a vacuum of a female leadership in the church, but absolutely. Yeah. Anything else on that on that second set of reading from Daring Mighty Things? Dare Mighty Things? Sorry, I should get that right. By Haley Lee Scott. None for me. Okay. Very cool. Um so we are about to wrap up here, but before we do that, um let's do our passing on. Uh Sarah, do you want to start us off with a passing on? This is the segment of the show where we tell you about something that you can read or do to sort of continue this conversation um, with us. So, Sarah, what do you got? Uh, well, the only thing I would say is I would just highly encourage any of our listeners, male or female, to become as actively involved in your church as your time and family situation allows. Women ministry um, is much more than who is standing in front of the pulpit or is, or who is in the big office. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, y'all just did a really great job talking about. It's who is the elders, who is deacon. So be on a committee, be on any committee, teach Sunday school, be as actively involved as your time allows. And because for me, it can be very difficult. I, I occasionally you'll hear someone say about, well, women need to be doing this, or I wish we could do this. And I'm like, well, well, what are you doing? Like, well, like, I, I'm not actually doing anything myself. And so for me, it always becomes very, very difficult, uh, to, to hear someone speak about the importance of women being in church leadership, but if you yourself are not involved. So if this is something that you 
that we are going to say we're going to care about, then we need to be as actively and emotionally involved with our churches as we can be and be on and be on that committee when there's an opening, find it and actively advocate for yourself and the needs of your group, whether that be singles, whether it be young marrieds, whether it be divorcee, whatever that is, actively be there and make sure that your voice is heard by going, by not just being at meetings, but going to the committee meetings, going to the, uh, to the budget uh, meetings that they have after church on Sunday that nobody ever goes, be as involved as you can. And that is to me, one of the best ways to be in leadership is to be able to affect uh, many of the da- the the daily decisions and operations of the church. Right. Thank you, Sarah, very much. Kim, what do you got for us? Yes, um, I would like to recommend uh, the Gospel Coalition has a podcast, and um, there are several episodes of that podcast where women are teaching on various topics. Sometimes it's specifically on female leadership or women's ministry or complementarianism. But um, what I appreciate about it is that it's very thoughtful, scholarly women teaching on these things. Um, And uh, that's because I don't get exposed to a lot of women teaching and preaching. Um, I've very much appreciated their, um, you know, sometimes very academic and scholarly approaches to these um, topics. So um, I will pick a couple of those episodes and share them on our show notes. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, So for my passing on, I would love to tell you about a book um, that a friend of mine has written on purity culture called um, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. And her name is Tina Sellers. And she did a lot of work on what pure, how purity culture has impacted marriages and individuals and, that, and intimacy in general in the conservative church. So I would love to give you her information. The book isn't out yet. It'll be out soon. Um, so I'll put that all in the show notes. And then also, just once again, I want to tell you about She Is Called Conversations. Um, so that you're very welcome at that at this conference. I would love to have you there. It's the website that I think I forgot to give at the beginning is she is called conversations.com. There you can see all of the incredible women who are facilitators. We have some keynote speakers as well. Um, we'll have some yoga. We'll, um, do all kinds of fun things in, in, uh, New York. Um, so I'd love to have you join me again. Uh, the promo code for 20% off your ticket is CFP capital CFP at she is called conversations.com. So please come uh, and see us in New York. Um, and thank you for listening to the Christian feminist podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at Christian feminist podcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Feminist is a the Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philip is our publishing liaison. Uh, for Sarah Davis and Kim Feldman, I'm Carly Ewert. Tune in next time for an episode on <laughs> I'm gonna have to make sure I say it right. Um, an episode on Ghost in the Shell. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. <laughs>